listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Hello, I'm Kennedy Weibel. And I'm Rebecca Capone. And this is Reading Pop Classics, the podcast where we read popular books, classics according to us, and then talk about what we like about them. Today, we're discussing Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, published in 1969. The full title, once you get inside the book to the title page, turns out to be Slaughterhouse-Five or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. It was published in 1969 and turned Vonnegut into a national star. He had written five novels before this and published a collection of short stories. His books before this weren't successful in the sense that they didn't make a lot of money. Two of them were nominated for Hugo Awards, a prestigious science fiction award that's given out annually at the World Science Fiction Convention. So they weren't considered bad novels, just not particularly popular novels. He taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop, the famous creative writing program. He was making it. He was getting by. But then he writes Slaughterhouse-Five, and he goes from being a writer to being Kurt Vonnegut, the internationally famous novelist, artist, playwright, and for some of us, the best ever person at playing themselves in a movie when he's in Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School. The novel, 215 pages in the Dell Fiction version I have, short, quick read, follows the life of Billy Pilgrim, a bland optometrist. Billy, like Kurt Vonnegut himself, is in World War II and survives the bombing of Dresden along Vonnegut himself, actually, who cameos in the novel. Another interesting thing about Billy is that he is, like the opening line of this episode tells us, unstuck in time. He's able to see and visit any moment in his life, past and future. He knows and has seen how he'll die, for example. And a third interesting thing about Billy is that he was kidnapped by aliens from Trafalmador and kept on display in one of their zoos for quite some time, alongside a movie star they also kidnapped named Montana Wildhack. The Truffamadorians are not the reason Billy is unstuck in time, but they do help him gain some perspective on it. So something you can expect in our podcast, for each book we podcast about, we will discuss whether or not the work passes the Bechdel test. For anyone who might be unfamiliar, the Bechdel test is used as a measure of the representation of women in fictitious media, including film, TV, and books. The Bechdel test asks if a piece of media features at least two women having a conversation about something other than a man. Some versions of the test require that the two female characters are named are named characters, so not just background characters. The Bechdel test originated with Alison Bechdel. She was a cartoonist who wrote a comic called Dykes to Watch Out For, which was published in an LGBTQ alternative newspaper. This is where the test originally appeared in 1985, and it was really just meant to be a joke, but the test became very popular and even more widely discussed uh, starting in the 2000s. She credits her friend Liz Wallace and the works of Virginia Woolf as inspiration. Uh, A little fun fact that I pulled from Wikipedia, media industry studies indicate that films which pass pass this test perform better financially than those uh, that do not. So I thought that was interesting, but it makes sense because it probably speaks to a wider audience when more people feel they're represented in a work. I imagine that's even more impactful for books because... Don't women buy the majority of books? I think so. I, I do think, think so, I've too. read that before. Yeah, yeah, I do think that women are tend to be tend to be more readers um, for for whatever reason. So Slaughterhouse Five does not pass the Bechdel test. Um, there is not uh, that we could that we could discern um, any conversation between two women. There are just frankly not very many female characters in this book. 
and for what it's worth, I mean, it is a book about World War II, and that is just a time that it's not that women weren't participating um, in, in World War II and, and contributing to the efforts in many ways. There's so much World War II, you know, fiction and um, nonfiction and historical fiction that, you know, kind of does feature what women were doing in the background. Um, but that is really not what this book um, is about, because this book is more specifically about the armed forces. And Kennedy, you didn't find anything in here that you felt like made it past the Bechdel test either, correct? No, there are not very many female characters. None of them have a conversation. There are not a lot of conversations in this book in fair. general. That's a fair point, yeah. It's it's not the kind of book that has a lot of back and forth dialogue. Characters don't speak to one another in the same way they did in like our last novel, A Confederacy of Dunces. Right, it is really more of a, of a narration. Yes, the majority, narration. and the majority of it takes place. The majority of it takes place in World War II uh, in the company of um, servicemen. So there's not a lot of women and, and around. Prisoners and prisoners of war, right? That were all men. Correct, and prisoners of war. Together. So Rebecca, had you read this before? Yes. So this is, um, I believe, the third time I have read Slaughterhouse Five. I read it in my. Uh, very early 20s, I think 21, 22. I think I read it again around 30 or so just to kind of revisit it. And this was my this this was my third reading. And I know in our last podcast, we something we discussed is that when when you revisit books, if you're rereading books or you're revisiting something, it it can, it, it sometimes can become a very different book. We see things that weren't there the first time, or we have experiences that inform something different. Um, in the book. And so I was really struck by that with this book. So this was a, this, so reading this time was a, a very different experience for me. Um, again, because I, I recently changed careers. I work in physical rehabilitation. I'm an occupational therapist. So how I read the book this time is a manifestation of symptoms of PTSD from someone who was a prisoner of war and survived a traumatic bombing that killed, you know, thousands of people, 100,000 people. Um, with very few survivors, um, and then the combination of a traumatic brain injury. So we learned that that Billy Pilgrim, on his way to I think an optometrist contra, um, conference, uh, is in a plane a plane crash again. He is the only survivor, so another traumatic experience for one, um, probably reminiscent of some of his war experiences. And he does suffer a traumatic brain injury. He's in a coma for a period of time. Um, it's not expected that he's going to come out of the coma. And from what I know about traumatic brain injuries, they are very, they're very altering depending on what, you know, part of the brain is, is damaged and affected. And the symptoms of traumatic brain injuries are, are, are wild, to be honest. Um, and it is, you know, something I've, I've seen and worked with in people. So I read this book very differently this time um, from when I was younger. When I was younger, this was magical realism. This had touches of science fiction. Um, and because I was younger and I had less understanding of anything in the world, I suppose, and things like war, um, you know, I, I just read it as kind of this, not this goofy book, but, you know, something again with this magical realism, this like sci-fi touch to it. And this time I was just looking at it through a very different lens um, of somebody who is sort of manifesting again, these, these symptoms from traumatic experiences. And then again, from this injury kind of causing um, what maybe seem a little more to me almost like these hallucinations, right, of being kidnapped by aliens, um, manifestations of some of the science fiction books um, that he has read, because the science fiction books that he has read are um, by Kilgore Trout, uh, is the the author that's, that's referenced so often in the book, you know, 
Um, and it, it is said in the book, um, he visits when he's, when Billy is visiting New York, um, uh, because he wants to go on any, any talk show, any radio that'll have him to talk about his experience with the Trofamadorians. Um, he goes into, uh, like a dirty, like a dirty bookshop or like a porn shop. And in the window, there's a bunch of Kilgore Trout, um, science fiction books. And so he's flipping through them. And one of the ones he's read does feature a man and a woman that have been kidnapped by aliens and are put on sort of a display in a zoo um, on this planet. Montana Wildhack, the movie star that he says he was on Trafamador with, the one they brought to be his mate while he was there, is on the cover of that book. She's on the cover of that book. Um, yeah. I also, so, so yeah, so like, I, so I see those things. And like I said, you know, again, this, this was a different lens for me this time, this to me, this time I'm looking at it as, and this is obviously, I mean, it's, it, this is known as an anti-war book. The narrator, um, Kurt Vonnegut himself describes it as an anti-war book. Um, something that we discuss far more these days, far more these days than I think we probably even were in 1969 is post-traumatic stress disorder. And that that's something that, um, I mean, anyone can experience that with a traumatic event, but it is certainly something that we see um, happening with soldiers a lot. It is taken much more seriously. It is addressed much more differently now, um, but it's not a new phenomenon. We just have a different name for it. Um, and we just have more attention to mental health these days than we used to. So. So that's something that I saw in this book, right? Is that like, this is a man who has been deeply affected, whose entire life has changed because of his experience in World War II, because of his experience as a prisoner of war and with the bombing of Dresden. So that was a very long-winded saying, uh, way of saying this is the third time I've read this book and it was a much different experience this time. This is the third, fourth, fifth, I'm not sure. I've read this book a lot. I also, until this read, it's probably been about 10 years since I read it. And until this reading, I don't think I, I didn't pick up on the PTSD part either. I took it all at face value that it was the way Kurt Vonnegut wrote it. It was science fiction. It was meant to be believed. I believed it anyway. I believed it within the context of the novel that Billy had gone to Trafamador because, because Kurt Vonnegut has written science fiction books that I had read. This is not the first Vonnegut book that I read. I don't think I got to this one until maybe college. The first one that I read was Breakfast of Champions, which turned me into a Vonnegut fan, came after this one. And then I went back and I read Cat's Cradle. I read Sirens of Titan. I don't know why I didn't go to this one quicker because it has the coolest title of any of his books, but it's a reread for me as well. And similarly to you, I didn't really pick those parts up or I didn't, I didn't pick up that I think now reading it as an adult, it seems to me obvious that the alien part of this story, the part where he goes and lives in a dome in a zoo with the Trafamadorians as an exhibit, and they explain to him his feeling of being unstuck in time is a result of PTSD and his traumatic brain injury from the plane crash. The plane crash that he has, he goes into the hospital, he comes out, and his wife dies on the way to visit him. So it's He's already got PTSD from the war. He suffers a traumatic brain injury when his plane crashes. And then when he wakes up from that incident, he finds out that his wife Valencia is dead and that she died on the way to come see him there. She died in the parking lot of the hospital, ironically. And I say ironically, and everything in this book deals in irony. It's a, it is a heavily ironic book. One of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, so... Billy is unstuck in time. He first comes unstuck in time, we're told in the, in the narrative, 
not because of the Tralfamadorians. He becomes unstuck in time while he's in World War II. It's after he's participated in the Battle of the Bulge. They've his particular unit, his platoon, has been dispersed, and he's with Roland Weary and two scouts. The four of them are separated from the rest of their unit and trying to make their way across a hostile Germany. And he's cold, shivering, tired, unhappy. He's been in a major battle, like a major historic battle from World War II that we know about now. He's just experienced it in real life. And that's the first time he comes unstuck in time. And I didn't realize also until this read that the way the book is structured mirrors the being unstuck in time. Because he's unstuck in time, and the Tralfamadorians explain to him later that he sees time the way they do. It is all just, it all happened. It all had to happen this way. They see the present, the past, and the future all simultaneously, just as different moments that have to be the moments that they are. And the way Vonnegut's written this works that way too. Like there is no plot buildup. We're not waiting to see what happens. We're told very matter-of-factly in the beginning that Billy survives the firebombing in Dresden. It's in the matter of like two paragraphs that he survives the firebombing, that he has the plane crash, that his wife will die. We're told all the events of the novel with very little fanfare right up front. Yes. And I'm, it's interesting that you brought that up because I, I made that note. I made that note in reading it this time as well. Yeah. The book disposes with chronology. The book, yes, absolutely. That we are we are given the facts, we understand what happens in Billy Pilgrim's life, and then we likewise jump around in time with Billy, essentially visiting revisiting these moments, looking at them the way the Trump the Tralfamadorians do. And like, yes, that is absolutely not a not a coincidence. Um, and so I think something that I something I noticed with this book, um, so I think just what an, um, something I noticed in this read is just what absolutely an amazing writer Kurt Vonnegut is. Um, so I do have like little points and things I want to bring up about that um, during our discussion today. But one of them is that I think one of them is the way that he gives us the facts up front and then we jump around. We are unstuck in time with Billy um, and, that he, and that, uh, to your point that he mirrors that in his writing. And I think that is just an example of what a sort of brilliant writer um, Kurt Vonnegut is. Let me add on to that by by quoting from a review that Michael Crichton wrote for the New Republic in 1969. Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park, of Sphere, of Westworld, of sorry, Michael Crichton, the man of incredible creative output. So in reviewing this, he wrote a really nice review of both Vonnegut and the book. And he says, his style is effortless, naive, almost childlike. There are no big words and no complicated sentences. It is an extraordinarily difficult style, but that fact is lost on anyone who has never tried to write that way. But I think that sums it up really well, because it isn't florid. It isn't long sentences. It's very short and direct, the way he writes. But it's punchy. It, it gets to you. Yes, it is. It's very short and direct. It feels like an easy read. I think because because of that, the sentences are short and direct. There is not big words that you have to stop and, and look them up or think about what they mean or look for you know context clues um, to figure out what he's saying. And I will say it it is an easy read. I don't think there's any shame in that. But there is so but there is so much in it, right? Like yeah. there is a lot of emotion in it. There is so much to to notice and to think and to find clever and interesting in the writing. Um, and just to to pop back really quick to our last podcast with the Confederacy of Dunces, I think is is different. There were, I feel like, a little more. Um, the writing is a little more, like the 
it's a little uh, more show offy. He's doing acrobatics. He's yeah, he's trying exactly. He's, Thank he's you. striving for punchlines and he gets them, but he's there's setups, there's buildups. It's a more convoluted right or sorry, it's not convoluted, but it is a more florid writing style. This is something modern that reminds me of this was Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Mm-hmm is simple, quick, direct sentences, and also a very like impactful book. Like you, you wear that book for another, another three weeks after you finish it, you're walking around with it. It's written very simply, and that doesn't take anything away from the impact of the storytelling. And that's what, he does that so well. And when I first started reading Vonnegut, I'm sure like a lot of people, I immediately started trying to write this way. I started trying to rip this off and imitate this. And it's impossible. You can't do it. Like no one can do it but him. Like you can't, you can't sound like Vonnegut and it seems like you should be able to. It yes. Be, it does it, seem like it should be something that is easy to emulate. Um, yeah. It feels it, like it, I should be able to rip this off and I, you can't. But this is very much, you know, he sounds like somebody who, he sounds like somebody who writes the way he talks. Like, I feel like if you met Kurt Vonnegut, you would know what to expect based on his writing. Didn't you used to live on his same street? I think so, on 5th Street in Manhattan? No, he lived on 47th. He lived on East was, 47th. What were you oh, on? Four, no, I was 46. Oh, yeah. Block away. Oh, too bad. Block away. The the opening chapter. I think the opening line, or I think a lot of people, I I forget all the time. I think the opening line is the one I read at the top of the podcast. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. And it's not. That's chapter two. The first chapter is just Kurt Vonnegut talking directly to us, the reader, telling us how he set about writing this and how he took his daughter and one of his daughter's friends to visit an old war buddy of his. And the old war buddy's wife was upset because he talked about how he was going to write the war book about him and his war buddy's experience in the war. And she says, you're going to write it like it's for John Wayne or a character to be played by Charles Bronson. And you were babies. You were just children when you went. And he promises her that he will not write that. There's a lot going on in the opening chapter. First of all, the fact that we're in television and movies, we call it breaking the fourth wall. I'm not sure what the name for it would be in literature, but he's talking directly to us, just telling us in this novel, this is what I was doing. This is what I set out to do. It's not an introduction. It's not a prologue. It's chapter one is the story of Kurt Vonnegut going to visit Bernard O'Hare, setting out to write this. And in that chapter, he tells us the opening and closing lines. Like, again, he just dispenses with the chronology and tells us that the, that the book is going to end with the line of birdsong, putuit. It's what we call metafiction now. I don't know if people called it that back then. Maybe they did. It was only the 60s. I say it like it was a thousand years ago. It was 1969. It was 11 years before I was born. Um, it's not that long ago. But it's, it's a use of metafiction that doesn't feel cute or twee, I suppose. Right. It still feels very straightforward because I was going to say it is, like, to your point, the chapter one is very much what we would consider an introduction or a foreword in another book. It's it's not unusual for an author to insert themselves and their 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 thoughts on the book or how the book came about, um, particularly in like later editions too. You know, like when something is classic, sometimes an author goes back and adds an introduction or a foreword. And I did find it interesting that he just makes that part of the book. Like he's just talking directly to us. This is, you know, I had this experience in war. I had these friends. We went back and visited Dresden. And then he also inserts himself 
in the book. I like that his I like his little cameo and I have it. Um, I will read it. Please, please do. It's so it's so funny. Uh, so when the and he puts this he puts this little this little line in there. So just for some context around it, um, you know, B- Billy is a prisoner of war. They are um, in like a what I assume is a concentration camp or a, a prisoner of war camp. And they are brought to um, some some Brit- uh, some British soldiers that have been prisoners of war for years for the better part of the war and kind of have this nice setup um, as far as you can have a nice setup being a prisoner of war where they have plenty of food. And they're more or less just kind of left alone in this camp and they are told to expect visitors and they are excited to have uh, these American prisoner of war visitors. They make them this really lovely meal. They put on a stage production of Cinderella, but the food makes all of the Americans really sick. Uh, Billy is kind of wandering around. He's fainted uh, during the the performance of the play. He's he's taken to the to the infirmary, uh, but he wakes up and, and he's kind of walking around a little bit in this dreamlike state. And he finds the latrine and the latrine is full of Americans who are as absolutely as sick as they can be. Um, And the the latrine itself is really just buckets um, against a, a fence. And I will read the quote. An American near Billy wailed that he had excreted everything but his brains. Moments later, he said, there they go. There they go. He meant his brains. That was I. That was me. That was the author of this book. (laughs) <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that. I laughed out loud when I read that too. I find that to be enjoyable. Um, I like that he's able to put a little bit of a lighthearted moment in this for one. Um, Cause I think that's Vonnegut. I think that's part of this, this kind of short, simple writing that it's, it's very human. It's a very human thing to add. And I mean, I, war would not exist if it weren't for humans. So to put these little human moments in there into something like that, I think just gives it that much more emotion. Like that's the kind of stuff that I think stays with you after you've read this book. Um, but I do like that he makes this, you know, cause he is in the book. I mean, he does reference him. He does reference himself. He does, you know, to your point, like yeah. breaking, breaking the fourth wall, if, if that's what we call it. Um, if that's what we would call it in literature. Uh, so something else that I think is really, is, is kind of powerful. And again, adds to the, the emotion of the book or something that stays with you in the book. Um, and that I find really interesting in his writing or that, that really struck me that it was something I noticed. It's something I noticed so quickly right off the bat in the book. And my book is filled with little highlights and, and my page being turned down or underlining all of these, these, these repetitious um, phrases throughout the book or, or scenes or imagery throughout the book. So one of them is obviously the phrase, so it goes. Um, and we're explained that that's, um, you know, in the Trafalmadorian way of of looking at um, at time and moments, that that's an expression they would use. So, like, if they see a dead body, they think like, oh, like, how unfortunate for, you know, for the human or for the for the being in this moment. But they see all these other moments. They see all all, the, all of these other places where, you know, the, the being is not dead. And so they just think so it goes. But he's like, when they see a dead body, they think that person's just not, that being's just not doing very well at that moment. Yes, this Which is an is unfortunate this... moment for the being. And there yeah. are unfortunate moments for everybody. But there's all of these happy moments. And that's what they suggest that you focus on. And so they use that expression, so it goes. And then we see that repeated so often throughout the book. And what I think is interesting is that that expression throughout the book is punctuated at very sad things. Yeah. Things that are very tough, like the the death of Billy's wife, that she pulls into the 
the the hot, she's been in this car a, a minor a, ma- a minor car accident a minor fender bender um which takes the the muffler or the transmission i don't know enough about cars to quite remember what it is um but no, she continues it, it, to drive to the hospital it drops the exhaust system on the road and she drives off in a panic to go see billy without her exhaust system and the car just fills up with carbon monoxide which is an interesting callback to that was how john kennedy tool chose to to kill himself oh interesting another callback to the confederacy of dunces but she drives the rest of the way without an exhaust system and the carbon monoxide seeps in and kills her and he makes i think i caught a couple of these and there might be more when the doctors come out and find her because she is slumped over the horn and the horn's going off in the parking lot he makes the comment that she is a beautiful azure blue which is a color that is referenced over and over again for the dead bodies and the color the I'm blue sorry, feet is yes it's re- it's referred to for the dead bodies that they see in the world war ii scenes and for the color of the freezing prisoners of war's feet in the war scenes there's another interesting color moment just this is the other one that i noticed when billy and roland weary have been captured and they're on the train to be sent to their prisoner of war camp the train is described and the cars on it are described and it says the locomotive and the last car of each train were marked with a striped banner of orange and black indicating that the train was not fair game for airplanes that it was carrying prisoners of war about two pages later at the start of a new chapter the wedding tent yes yeah, yeah you I, have, that? I have this i have this marked in my book too let me do um, it billy pilgrim could not sleep on his daughter's wedding night he was 44. The wedding had taken place that afternoon in a gaily striped tent in Billy's backyard. The stripes were orange and black. And I thought that was, I was proud of myself for noticing it, first of all. I don't always necessarily catch <laughs> catch the subtler illusions that, that pepper a novel. Uh, but I also thought it was a funny little dig at marriage, I suppose. Like marriage this is a symbol. Or big weddings, that, yes. Yes, these are prisoners of war. That these are prisoners of war. That's interesting. I had I had not I had not actually made that connection. I just noticed the repetition itself. So I do think it's funny that you that you bring well, that up. It would slide by. It, it could easily slide by you, even if you were an attentive reader. But it also, I guess, gives us a little bit of a clue to the PTSD that you and I didn't notice reading this when we were younger and less attuned to such things. That there's triggers that are kicking Billy off when some of these moments of him coming unstuck in time happen. Yes, that's something that I picked up with the repetition as well. Um, the blue and ivory feet, again, is something that comes up um, many times. Um, another repetition was well, when Billy and and Roland Weary are walking, because they were alone. Uh, Billy and Roland Weary are alone when they're when they're captured as prisoners of war. The scouts have gone off and, and left them behind because they are both ridiculous. They are both ridiculous prisoners and the scouts know they're going to be better off on their own, right? Um but the scouts think they're going to be better off on their own and then they're immediately killed immediately killed yeah for for abandoning for abandoning because that is not part of what we're what you're doing what you're meant to be doing in the armed services right i mean you're you're meant to be looking out for each other it is not every man for himself when you are in the armed services and they they break that right they ditch these two guys and are immediately killed which i do think is also maybe a little again i mean vonnegut is was an army man you know i mean this is his experience in world war ii so um, uh, you know, a little, a little nod there to, you know, what, what makes an army man, I think, or, or a serviceman, if you will. Um, but when they are, they are captured in the woods, they, they hear a dog 
uh, that has a voice like a big bronze gong. And then we see we see that again. That is that is repeated later in the book when they are still prisoners of war and they are they're heading into the prison camp. Like they've gotten off the train. And it says somewhere a dog barked with the help of fear and echoes and winter silences. That dog had a voice like a big bronze gong. And that is also, again, the imagery and the reference that is made when they are in the woods and they are initially captured um, as prisoners of war. I wonder if it's um, bare, I wonder if it's somewhere else in the book too that we just missed if it's hidden in a post-war scene. It, I think it might be in there somewhere else as well. I just had the page open to that one as I was kind of just again flipping back through the the many like repetitions and stuff that I noticed throughout the book. So you mentioned a repetition and in particular the so it goes which is thematically laced throughout the book. Uh, I got a book of of letters Kurt Vonnegut's letters that have been collected and published. And I'm going to read you snippets from his letter home to his parents immediately after Dresden. So after he is found after Dresden, taken to a VA hospital and finally given a chance to communicate with his parents, who until then just thought he was killed in action or missing in action was probably what he was listed as. So this is his letter home to his parents. And it starts in real life in the same boxcar scene. The British RAF actually shot up the train that he was on when they were being transported to the prisoner of war camp by accident. They did not notice the orange and black stripes. And he says, they killed about 150 of us. We got a little water Christmas day and moved slowly across Germany to a large POW camp in Mulberg, south of Berlin. We were released from the boxcars on New Year's Day. The Germans herded us through scalding, delousing showers. Many men died from shock in the showers after 10 days of starvation, thirst, and exposure, but I didn't. On about February 14th, the Americans came over, followed by the RAF. Their combined labors killed 250,000 people in 24 hours and destroyed all of Dresden, possibly the world's most beautiful city, but not me. On that happy day, the Russians were intent on mopping up isolated outlaw resistance in our sector. Their planes, P-39, strafed and bombed us, killing 14, but not me. This was just a letter that he sent home from, to his parents, and I took these lines out of context of a larger letter, but that repetition is there in the way he described this as a 20-something just after this has actually happened to him. Lots of men died, but I didn't. They killed 250,000 people in 24 hours, but not me. They strafed and bombed us, killing 14, but not me. He was doing it then, and he carried that over. I don't know if he particularly found it in this letter and thought to do it again, but you can see it in his just casual writing style as he's telling his parents where he's been and what's happened to him and that he is very much alive. Well, and you had, you know, you had said that some of the repetition and some of the imagery that's repeated, um, you know, now that we are, we're kind of both looking at it through this lens of, of like the traumatic brain injury and how that causes these um, almost like refractions right in the brain or these, these illusions or hallucinations, or, or it can bring back, you know, it can bring back memories for people or color and change memories for people or their, their emotions like surrounding it. Right. So, you know, you mentioned these, these triggers and something that I think that, that just kind of struck me as you were, as you were reading those things, right. And as we're learning about his experience, which again, is very clearly reflected in this book through Billy Pilgrim, you know, this is, this is a fairly autobiographical novel, right. And this is a book that I think is probably written from somebody who has experienced PTSD. And I think maybe that's where some of this like imagery 
and the repetition comes from because it sounds like that's something that that he was experiencing like he was coming back with this this feeling and this experience and we don't call it that we didn't have the language to to address those things quite quite as much back then i think that started um i want to say that 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 addressing you know ptsd and soldiers comes a little bit more around vietnam or maybe we realize like the lack of it around Vietnam. And I think it's more in like Iraq and Afghanistan that it was something that we started addressing like as a society or, or that the services themselves started addressing more and, and putting a name to and really focusing on. Vietnam, they referred to them as being shell-shocked. While they acknowledged it, I don't think shell-shocked was necessarily... It wasn't a medical term. It also was not necessarily the most empathetic of terms. I don't think the way people used it, it was... It was not medical, as you point out, and it was just kind of meant to lump people who seemed gone in a way into a group and a an, an inelegant shorthand for people who were clearly hurt and damaged in some way. Yes, and something that we didn't have these um, these pathologies or these pathways or these me- methods of of dealing with and treating this. Right, it was something that was just sort of like, well, they're shell shocked, and that and there's nothing to be done about that. Right, like we can. We can amp- we can amp- we can amputate the arm. We can we can sew up gunshot wounds and and these kinds of things, but we can't treat this other thing. They're shell shocked. Yeah, there's a huge pushback on it from the armed forces. From nobody wants to admit that the thing that these people go through leaves them permanently damaged. Everybody wants to believe that a soldier feels honor and pride in their service, in their actions, and in what they do, and in serving their country. And that's certainly possible, but it seems almost commonsensical now. Like it seems impossible that people could not believe that sending someone out into the horrors of war would leave them somehow mentally affected or emotionally affected. And but there was a huge resistance to ever admitting that this was even a thing. Yes. And like now in our common era, we have the term the Sunday scaries, which is like just the regular human PTSD on a Sunday night of like having had too much fun on the weekend and knowing you have to go back to work and lying in bed panicking about it on a Sunday night. Like we can admit that that's a thing, that that actually happens, that we all know what that feeling is from just like, I don't know, having Bud Lights on a Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) But there's still resistance to the idea of PTSD from like people who serve and like are put through the rigors of war, the rigors of service, whatever they might be, that there could be some sort of lasting impact from that. Yes. And this, so this dovetails nicely into um, a thought I had tried to start earlier and my train of thought left, but it has come back to me. And uh, and it dovetails nicely into this conversation. When we were discussing Confederacy of Dunces, we discussed how this is really essentially a book about nothing. Yeah. It's like Seinfeld, right, is a show about nothing. And this book, something that struck me right from the the get-go, because again, he puts everything very upfront right in chapter one, um, is that this is very much a book about something. This is an anti-war book. This is known as an anti-war book. He says it's an anti-war book. He's, you know, he's writing this book about the the horrors of war, right? And so I think something that 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 past, I think, like refusal to accept what this does to men. It's almost just excusing, like, but war is always going to be there. This is a natural human instinct is almost what that addresses, right? So it's like, if you're a serviceman, you should feel honor and respect that you're going to do this thing. And it takes away, like, what is happening in war? The number of the number of deaths, and, and these are not, and like something that we learn about Dresden, that is not just the deaths of servicemen who have quote unquote signed up for it. 
No, that's a lot of civilians. civilians are killed. The numbers that are given for the number of deaths in this book are are incorrect now by the by current historians. Vonnegut is working from a number that was accepted at the time, which I think is about 135,000 deaths. And I think he mentions in the book, which makes it worse than Hiroshima in terms of in terms of deaths was I, I think Hiroshima's uh just north of seventy thousand deaths is what the yeah. the confirmed number is there. The hundred and thirty five thousand number and the reference to this being worse than Hiroshima is inaccurate now. And it was made inaccurate, I think, while Vonnegut was alive. Uh it was working from a number that was published by the Germans themselves at the time. I didn't obviously do the research into this, but some historian somewhere did that the they inflated it to make the attack seem worse because it was wartime and i guess that's how you do it the deaths are estimated i think to be between like 25 and 35,000 and it was pointed out to vonnegut that like the number in his book is incorrect to which he i think very uh smartly replied what difference does it make oh only 30,000 dead people like oh oh you know what never mind it's cool that like yeah i think that was his response like it doesn't matter it's a her the point is the horror that everybody goes through that everyone in this situation went through i think what's fascinating is that it is an anti-war book and it's he's it the anti-war message is sort of slipped in like this isn't a book that sits down and editorializes what and why war is wrong. In fact, it doesn't do any of that outside of, it refers to things as massacres, but it's not an editorial book that is giving you a list of reasons why this is horrible. In fact, it's reductive in the sense that it it simplifies the explanations of what is going on so much that it becomes absurd that just lets you see the horror and the suffering that the characters go through even in these snippets even in this non-chronological non-build-up not it doesn't crescendo at it doesn't even crescendo at the bombing of dresden it goes on after that the bombing of dresden is actually not described very much correct it's just a thing that it's just a thing that happens we know it's coming it's passed over in a couple of lines it's just it's not hammered home he reduces the story to this very these very simple descriptions and explanations of what we're looking at. And in doing that, it sort of highlights the terror and the horror of the things that are going on and things the characters are going through. And I think something else that's fascinating about that is that the book doesn't take sides. The book doesn't no, take- No, it is not a book that, it is not a book that really villainizes the Germans, which is often how we as Americans look at World War II. And it doesn't villainize the Americans, which is how you would maybe think an anti-war book would position itself it doesn't do either of those things it doesn't it just decidedly does not do them no it's a little bit more that the the villain is war itself yeah i suppose and i don't know just, i think just all, all all of these deaths and the way it affects people and again like we've discussed this is a book that is written this is an insider perspective on ptsd it glamorizes nothing Mm-mm. it glamorizes none of it and it doesn't it also doesn't go in a lot, though, for making any of it horrifying or grotesque. It doesn't. No, there's nothing. There's nothing gory, or there's not a. There's not gore and violence. There are not really. There are not battle scenes necessarily. We hear. We hear about corpses, but they are not these like disgusting things. We don't hear about torture. We don't hear. Yeah, it's not dramatized. 
The closest we get to that is Roland Weary being somebody who is, you know, he's going on on about all these like weapons and stuff that he has. Um, but then he dies of. Yeah, he dies lying on the floor of a box car in the in the yeah pneumonia or exposure or, or starvation. I mean, not which again, I mean, is, is a hand of war, right? This is something that other humans are doing to him that do cause his death. So um, oh, the the horror of it is not dramatized. The heroism of it is not dramatized. In fact, I don't know if there could be a less heroic character in all of American literature than Billy Dogass Pilgrim. Like no, he, he's a buffoon soldier throughout the whole thing. He's in that ridiculous outfit with the silver boots and the blue toga and the uh, and the muff. Yes, and it's not. They give him that silly coat, and he just ends up wrapping it up like as a muff. He doesn't take his ridiculous predicament and make good out of it. He doesn't make lemons out of lem make lemonade out of lemons. He just schleps through this miserable slump shouldered and weak and unhappy and he doesn't learn a lesson from it he doesn't find some piece of himself in it he's miserable the whole time and rightfully so right that's the yeah, takeaway yeah, is enough. that and this was the average schmo future optometrists who we sent out to do this thing this was the the soldier the average american he's, that we he's sent a over child there. yeah they weren't he's what 18 19 like 1920 Mary, or something when he's yeah. in the war like he's he's very young we see in the beginning when kurt vonnegut is talking to us when he's just inserting himself you know in the in the story not asserting himself in the story just just frankly speaking to us about how this book came about and what he's going to be writing about um and he mentions bernard bernard o'hare's wife right and she's she's furious you know she's they he gets the minute he walks into the house he senses that she's upset. She doesn't like him and she wishes that he wasn't there. And then she comes out, um, as you, you know, as you've already outlined, you know, I don't, I don't want you to write this book that, that uh, uh, about war heroes. This is a terrible thing. And you were children when you were there. And now I have children and I'm looking at them and, and thinking, uh, what if this was them? And so he mentions, you know, the like the children's crusade. And then that is brought back later in the book. Um, the old there's like the the older soldier and by older i mean like the, the middle-aged soldier um derby oh, poor, poor edgar derby poor poor old edgar derby and he says you know we've had to imagine the war here and we've imagined that it was being fought by aging men like ourselves we had forgotten that wars were fought by babies when i saw those freshly shaved faces it was a shock my god my, my god i said to myself it's the children's crusade yeah and that's the line that he that he tells you know Bernard or Hare's wife. I'll call it the Children's Crusade. I'm not going to write this as a glamorous war novel. Let me ask you: Do you believe that story that Mary O'Hare was like, "You're going to write a Rambo book like style"? I don't think Rambo would come out yet, but um, and also if it had, it was the original Rambo. And the original Rambo is actually not anything like the other Rambos. He's a, a veteran suffering PTSD hiding in the mountains of Western PA, I think. She accuses him of writing a, you're going to make it a John Wayne style book or a, a Lee Marvin style book. Do you believe that? That is a very motherly perspective to have, though. Sure. That is a very motherly perspective for Kurt somebody Vonnegut who Kurt had is... written five novels before this and, if, and well, a bunch of short stories. And if you've read any of them... The guess that he was going to write a John Wayne style book about World War II just seems <laughs> way off. Like maybe she's not read any of his other works. Like her 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 only 
for all we know, her only, you know, dealings or or knowledge of Vonnegut, right, is like, oh, this guy, you know, this guy's a writer. But I mean, she might only know him as a guy that was in the war with her husband. No, I suppose that's true. I just <laughs> she's dealing with a man. She's dealing with a man. You know, uh, Vonnegut shows up with a bottle of whiskey or whatever, and she's, you know, he's told that Bernard or Hare will not be partaking in the whiskey. You know, he can have a beer or whatever, but like he doesn't drink hard liquor, and it's implied that he's. It's implied that there's a reason behind it and that yes, part of it probably is his own PTSD, right? Or is or this tendency to drink away these these horrible experiences. Um, so she doesn't want to, you know, to have the whiskey. So I mean, she's she's also dealing with somebody who has PTSD. And now she has her own children and knowing that, I mean, this is this was written in 1969, right? So we're in Vietnam. Yeah, I don't want watching I mean, a bunch of eight, watching a bunch of eighteen year olds get drafted and killed in what in what is an incredibly gory war. I always took it at face value until this reading, and then I was like, he was he wasn't famous. He wasn't Kurt Vonnegut yet. I mean, but he was a known writer. He had written five books. He perhaps she knew nothing about him. That's perfectly plausible. I don't want to accuse Kurt Vonnegut of manufacturing the intro to one of the greatest anti-war novels of all time. It just seems like a real wild swing to assume that the guy who wrote God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater and Sirens of Titan and Cat's Cradle, you know, was about to churn out a John Wayne style, like World War II apologia, uh, celebrating the heroism and the bravery of the folks who were there when they were. But that might also have been a lot of what she was seeing in World War II books. I read a lot of world, I read a lot of books about World War II, both, um, both fiction and nonfiction. And they are all, they are often written about heroes. They are not written. It was not a terrible thing. I I mean, no, I've never written something that right. does and not I, paint the Holocaust as an absolutely horrific mar on humanity. No, and I, as I mentioned, it, he wasn't widely read, so there's no. It is probably true. I don't know him to be a fabulous. In, Amer- in, but, in the American perspective, so I will not paint this as a perspective of of people outside of America. An American perspective is that we as Americans are the heroes of World War II, and that if it were not for us the result of the war would have been different is, I mean, do you agree with me that that is a very American perspective on world war two? We came in and like saved the day. Here we are, captain America. That was us. I think that's the perspective that we have It's one we've been told through movies and books. I don't think it's entirely inaccurate. I'm no, I don't think it's entirely inaccurate. I do think like the, a, the allies the desperately needed us to step in. I'm yes, sure. So I do, I do. Well, I do think that is true to an extent I mean, America, America the, does the, have a bit of an ego the, problem. We, we are sold it in a way that sometimes feels like it undercuts the massive, massive efforts of the other allies of, well, it's always sold in a way that really undercuts the efforts of Russia. Um, but it's not necessarily untrue. It is just not uh, presented with any kind of grace or acknowledgement of all the other efforts that went all the other efforts that went into it parts of the war are not dramatized they're not dramatized positive or negative and in fact when something kind of dramatic does happen it is usually immediately undercut with as you mentioned before the repeat the repeating phrase so it goes which is sort of what the purpose of that phrase is is to flatline everything that happens like a horrible death so it goes uh sort of comical ironic death so it goes 
like all of it is sort of leveled by the repetition of that line as just here here's life moving forward and as we've mentioned you know the so it goes line it, it does it, it punctuates sad things it punctuates deaths it, it, it punctuates things that are that are terrible but something that we've learned from the Trophamadorians, right is that you know so that's something that they say when they see like a dead corpse right of like oh this you know this person's seems to be in a, a real bad moment so it goes but you know they they're looking at it as like they, they had all these other beautiful moments they exist in all these other beautiful moments and so i'm you know all, that punctuation of so it goes throughout the book. I wonder if we are meant to remember that. So so war is this terrible thing, and it's not. It's it's clearly something that's not going to go away. But you know, Billy Pilgrim and his wife had a really nice marriage, right? So we see like yeah. right that she dies on the on the way to the hospital there, and you know they find her in the parking lot um, of, with carbon monoxide poisoning. So it goes. But they've had this really lovely life together. So as as much as these horrible things have happened. Um, and he, you know, he's dealing with PTSD. She dies on her way to the hospital. But I mean, we do see some nice moments from from their life together as well. And those are things that exist. And those are things that exist throughout humanity. All right. Shall we do some quotes? One from the opening chapter that I just thought was nice and a little bit funny is he's describing taking his daughter and her friend to see Bernard and Mary O'Hare. And he says, the little girls were wearing white party dresses and black party shoes. So strangers would know at once how nice they were. I just think that's a funny way to describe that. I think I also underlined that quote. A line that is quoted a lot from this is in the description of uh, where Billy gets the crucifix from. Uh, his mother picked it up in a Santa Fe gift shop. And the narration says, like so many Americans, she was trying to construct a life that made sense from things she found in gift shops. Yes, that was a line I enjoyed. Um, another one I have. Um, so Barbara is Billy's daughter. And, um, you know, she's she's upset because he's gone to New York to to talk on the radio about being abducted by aliens. Right. And, and people at home hear it. She's embarrassed and, and, and she's worried. Right. That this guy's having that this yeah. guy's clearly suffering traumatic brain injury with these sort of crazy after effects, right? Um, and there's a quote, she celebrated frustration by clapping her hands. And I just really like that yeah, turn of phrase like because clapping is a, is a celebration, right, of something. And so I just... But I can also see it. I can see the like, listen, yeah. dad, like the clap, like the... Absolutely. I can see, I can see it immediately when I read that the frustrated, like hands together as you talk down to someone that you're, you're frustrated with and you're trying to like hold and it And I together. like that described as a, as, as a celebration of frustration. Yeah. Another one that I have is when they're marching them to the POW camp and it says they were moving like water downhill all the time and they flowed at last to a main highway on the a valley's floor. Through the valley flowed a Mississippi of humiliated Americans. Um, on Tralfamador, you'll know why I picked this one. Um, so on Tralfamador, they had only one actual book in English, which would be placed in a Tralfamadorian museum. It was Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne. First of all, I absolutely <laughs> I loved that. um because that would have been a very popular book at the time, right? Like that that comes out, I think, in the 50s or 60s. Uh, so Kennedy knows that this is a um, a this this is one of my top five books. I love Valley of the Dolls, and um, it is going to be done on this podcast. So uh, I wanted to to share that quote for for all of those reasons. I found it a hilarious. Um, again, it would have been a really popular book when this book was written. 
uh, was around the time that book came out. And uh, again, it's a favorite of mine and, and it will be d discussed on this podcast. So I'll look forward to um, in that podcast discussing what, what we think, you know, B Billy might have thought about it. Uh, we, 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 can, we can bring that back in. Another one that I liked was when they bring Montana Wildhack to his dome on Tralfamador to bring him a mate. They bring her in and, and the Tralfamadorians all go nuts because they're very excited, hoping, like we watch pandas, hoping that they'll mate. And they say, Montana was naked and so was Billy, of course. He had a tremendous wang, incidentally. You never know who'll get one. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love that he uses the expression wang. I like that he just goes for something so, um, so hilarious. I also just like you never know you never who know get one. one. It's just it's such because we don't it's expect it in Billy Pilgrim, right? Like we're all, everything we're given about Billy is he's this like bland guy. He's uh, he, he's a lame. He's not a heroic soldier. I don't want to say he's a lame soldier. He's not a heroic soldier. He's a young man thrust into this horrible it's thing. Also, but then it's like the addition, the addition of that part at the end. Yeah, the addition of that part at the end. You never know who'll get one. Is like emblematic of the way Vonnegut wrote this, as though. He's a guy sitting on a bar stool telling you. Actually, he wrote this as though he's sitting at that table with Bernard O'Hare telling stories about like out of sequence things that come to two two old vets talking through their their stories of their lives and their time in the war. Yeah. Um, a last quote that I have um, that I was kind of excited uh, to to share or to bring up. So again, when Billy's in in New York and he's in the the porn shop looking at the Kilgore Trout novels that are just kind of in front to make it seem like a more upstanding business, and he he picks up a book that he had read. He got a few paragraphs into it, realized he'd read it before uh, in the Veterans Hospital. It was about an Earthling man and woman who were kidnapped by extraterrestrials. They were put on display in a zoo on a planet called Zircon Two Twelve. Uh, the repetition for that in me is that Zircon 212 mirrors Slaughterhouse-Five. Oh, that's true. So that has lots of, you know, again, we talked about those those triggers, right, in PTSD or these, like, echoes yeah. throughout the book. Um, and that one has so many, right, that, like, this is clearly where a little bit of that, like, traumatic brain injury, like, hallucination or illusion is coming from for him. And then the, I just thought, again, that it was interesting that it Zircon 212 mirrors the Slaughterhouse-Five, like the, the title of the book. That is throughout Vonnegut's novels, Kilgore Trout's novels are constantly given pornographic titles. Oh, I'm sorry. Kilgore Trout's novels are constantly given pornographic covers and put in porn shops, but they're just regular Kilgore Trout novels when you buy them. They just have trashy covers to like make them I sell. I thought that seemed familiar. I felt like Kilgore Trout is yeah, yeah, mentioned yeah, yeah, in yeah. many other books. Um, I have one more, and it's less a quote, but one of Kilgore Trout's books called The Gutless Wonder um, is about a robot who had bad breath, who became popular after his halitosis was cured. <laughs> and I don't know why I find it very funny, but just the 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 very idea of a robot that has, we made a robot, it's perfect, terrible halitosis. I guess just how would that even happen? Why? What would you have built into the robot that would give it? Does it have to eat? Why does it have bad breath? How would that, right. How would that even be a thing? Why does it have bad breath? Does it? It doesn't because bad breath is caused by like bacteria and stuff in your like true yeah. halitosis, right? Is caught. There's like there's causes for it. It can be addressed. Just there's this great robot that no one likes, but it's because he has halitosis, and once they get that cleared up, he's quite popular. I always I I always enjoyed that. Um, okay. Let's do tidbits. 
So characters from Vonnegut's previous novels appear in this novel. So Kilgore Trout is in several novels before and after this one. Uh, Elliot Rosewater is in this book, and he is also the title character from uh, one of his previous novels called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Howard Campbell Jr. is the American who works for the Nazis and comes to their prison camp to try to convince them to go fight the Russians. He's the main character of the Vonnegut novel Mother Night. Bertram Copeland Rumford, who is the guy who is in his hospital room with him after he goes into, I'm sorry, after he suffers the brain injury in the plane crash, he is related to a character from Sirens of Titan named Winston Niles Rumford. Slaughterhouse-Five, was a, uh, it was a success pretty much as soon as it dropped. It spent 16 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It peaked at number four. It was nominated, like Sirens of Titan and Cat's Cradle, for the Hugo Award. Uh, do you want to take a guess at what it lost to? No, I have to you want, How many science fiction writers do you know? Pick, pick the science fiction writer you know. Philip K. Dick. No, actually, I thought you were going to guess Margaret Atwood, and I was going to take pleasure in telling you, no, it's Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh, that's the other science fiction writer that I know. Yes, I thought. <laughs> you had a 50-50 shot, I thought. Um, it lost to Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. Slaughterhouse-Five was also turned into a movie that Vonnegut loved. Like Vonnegut's earlier novels, the movie was critically adored, but com commercially ignored. Uh, it did win the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes, and it has the weird distinction of me knowing almost zero people in the movie. Like, usually you put up a movie, I've heard of somebody in it. I I couldn't, there's one name that I recognize, and I wouldn't have been able to tell you what he was in if I hadn't looked it up, but it was a guy named Robert Liebman, who is probably most famous for his stage work in Angels of America. I wouldn't have known that. But you might know him as uh, the doctor from Garden State, that Zach Braff movie. Oh, wow. I had no idea yeah. this was made into a movie. Apparently, Vonnegut loved the movie. It, and apparently, critics loved the movie. Audiences, I guess, were fine with the book and didn't. And as we learned in the beginning of this podcast, maybe it's because it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> it would have been more commercially <laughs> successful. That's true. I was thinking, Rebecca, since it was referenced in this book, and since it is one of your favorites, do you want to do Valley of the Dolls next? A hundred percent. And this passes the Beck, and I can already tell you it passes the Bechdel test. Well, save it for the, <laughs> what are you going to do in the intro? You blew it. You That's cut, your intro. You cut that part out. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes. Thank you guys for tuning in. And we're excited to present the Valley of the Dolls in our next podcast. Yeah, we'll see you next time.